On May 24, 2013, a few days after his 26th birthday, an unheralded Nigerian-American wrestler took to the cage in Miami, Florida for his second professional mixed martial arts fight. He lost by first-round submission to a lanky grappler by the name of Jose Caceres after just under four minutes of scramble heavy madness. It was the last time Kamaru Usman would leave a mixed martial arts cage without getting his hand raised. Not to say that this was a long time ago, but that event, CFA 11, had a change of main event when Valentine Overeem withdrew and had to be replaced by Travis View. Sixteen straight victories and seven and a half years later, Kamaru Usman is the UFC welterweight champ and one of the most dominant fighters in the sport. He enters the octagon this Saturday, looking to defend his title for a third time. If he succeeds, he will pass future Hall of Famer Robbie Lawler on the list of most title defenses. Above him on that list, it's all-time greats all the way up. Pat Militich, Tyron Woodley, Matt Hughes, and of course George St. Pierre. Standing in the way of the Nigerian nightmare, however, is the most dangerous challenger of his title reign thus far. A world-class grappler and powerful striker who also happens to be a former longtime training partner. For a champ whose detractors accuse him of delivering boring fights, Gilbert Burns as challenger feels like the perfect antidote. Greatness awaits. Good evening and welcome to the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC 258 Usman vs. Burns. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of Sherdog.com, and with me is Keith Schillen, executive producer of the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network, as well as a writer for Sherdog.com and a host and creator of numerous shows for Sherdog Radio, including the Schillen and Duffy Show. Keith, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing excellent, man. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, let me just, let me throw this to you. We just finished UFC Vegas 18 last weekend, UFC Fight Night 184, uh, Overeem versus Volkov. We both said before the card as well as after the card, this was a rich card in terms of just high-level fights, fighters with momentum, fights that mattered a lot. Does this card, south of the main event, obviously, does it feel like a little bit of a letdown compared to last week's Fight Night card? Yeah, I think it does. Absolutely. Um, well, we've had some fights fall apart, which always happens in COVID. We had, you know, Jimmy Rivera versus Pedro Munoz. We had Chris Wyman versus Jari Hall. Like, those were two of the more exciting matchups, uh, definitely in a ranking sense. But if you think about it for a second, you know, looking top to bottom, I think the placement of some of the fights are kind of weird, and we'll get to that in a second. But if you took Kamara Usman, you know, he's a champion. You take you took Kamara Usman off this card and replaced him with anybody else in the welterweight division, top 10, top five rankings, anybody. And and I think it's one of the best weight classes in MMA, maybe the best. But if you replace Kamara Usman with Leon Edwards or Kobe Covington or wh whoever, last week's card's better than this card. Oh, completely like, agree. It wouldn't feel like a pay-per-view at all. Or just swap the main events. Put Overeem and Volkov on this card. Put an actual title fight on the other card. The other card's a pretty good pay-per-view, and this is an average fight That's night. That's right. That's, yeah, absolutely. That's actually a better way to say it, yeah, if you switch the main events. Uh, the other thing is, like, the placement is is really weird. Like, like Marquez Patolo on the... I think that's on the main card. Last time I checked, like that's that's really weird. Uh, Marquez has been out for a long time. Patolo's on like a losing streak. Like that didn't make sense. Um, 
And then you, you get, yeah, I know Bobby Green and Jim Miller is high on the card now. And then you have people that a lot of, you know, the hardcores are excited about. You have like a grudge match between Brian Keller and, and Ricky Simone. That would make more sense on higher on the card. Uh, two good female fighters and Jillian Robinson and Miranda Maverick. That would make more sense. Adolfo Vieira is someone that everybody's excited about. Like these guys higher in the card would make more sense. Uh, so it just seems like a very weird card, particularly the main card. And the and then the, even the co-main event, like Gaslam and Heinish makes more sense for the co-main event than Barbara on a you know, Barbara coming off a loss and Alexa Grasso. It's, yeah, I, the the placement of the Komen is very strange to me. I I under I mean, obviously I understand these are both women who either are or have been the UFC's next big thing. In you know both Barbara and Grasso, but you could argue that in terms of relevance, it's not any better than Maverick versus Robertson, and that's the curtain jerker. Yeah, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah, and they kind of both play the role. Like you know, Alexa Grasso, you know, Jillian Robinson. They kind of both been in that top ten rankings, and then you have Barber and Maverick as like the you know the hotshot young prospects that everyone seems to be excited about. Like the it's a very very similar matchup, and yet these are the five fights that we are being asked to pay seventy dollars for: Jim Miller and, versus and, Bobby Green, Julian Marquez yeah. versus Maki Patolo. Kelvin Gastelum versus Ian Heinish, Macy Barber versus Alexa Grasso, and of course, Usman versus Burns. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, Maverick and Robinson is open up the card, and that's below other female fights that doesn't nearly have the same kind of uh, attention behind it. Oh, sure. It's, I mean, someone in Poliana Viana that could have been released off of her last loss. Like, it yeah. wasn't a guarantee that she was even going to get another UFC fight, and she's way farther up the card. Doesn't yeah, make a whole lot sense. of sense, but regardless of what order they put them in, we're going to talk about all 12, so you, you're ready to kick this thing off? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Opening things up on the UFC 258 prelims, it is a flyweight matchup between Jillian Robertson and Miranda Maverick. Robertson, the 25-year-old Canadian by way of Coconut Creek, Florida, is 9-5 and five overall. Six and three since joining the UFC off of the 26th season of The Ultimate Fighter. She'll be facing Maverick, the 23-year-old who joined the UFC from Invicta last year. She is eight and two overall, one and zero in the UFC, having made a successful debut against Liana Jojua at UFC 254 last October. Currently, Maverick is a slight favorite available at minus 140, where Robertson is sitting at plus 120 or so as the slight underdog. Keith, how do you feel about this one? Well, when we were just talking about it, I think this is one of the best matchups. At least, I shouldn't say best matchup. It's, it's a very intriguing matchup. Like I'm interested to see how this one goes, to see where both fighters go you know, in the future. I mean, the both fighters are extremely young. I'll start with Jillian Robinson. Jillian Robinson is 25 years old. She's still pretty raw on the feet. I mean, she's she's uncomfortable on the feet. It's without trying to insult, she's kind of one-dimensional. Uh, she's a grappler on the feet. She's kind of stiff. She lacks head movement. Not a lot of power because she's not technically sound. Kind of arm punches. Like for a long time, I've given her a pass due to her age. 
But we got to start seeing signs of improvement at this point because she's got a lot of fights under her belt in the UFC. Her best strength on the feet is probably her kicks, and even that is nothing special. Like she kind of just throws them out there. Uh, she's gonna want to get the fight to the ground. Uh, she got good entries, whether she's getting on a, a leg and kind of turning the corner, or just catching a king kick and bull rushing. I've even seen her like just pull guard, or even against uh, Talia Santos, she like kind of jumps to a flying armbar because she was okay falling on bottom. Wasn't the best idea because Talia Santos kind of uh, smothered her and, and beat her up from the top position for the remainder. She is a girl that if she gets you down, she's not going to chase the submission right away. She'll emphasize kind of securing a position over submission, which is uh, something you definitely like. She has six submission wins. Uh, perfect example of her kind of working the position until a submission opens. It's Courtney Casey fight. It took her the whole fight, but she finally late in the fight got the, got the submission. If she's put on bottom, she she does have good hip movement where she can throw up submissions from the bottom. Though sometimes she's, she does look for an armbar or a triangle instead of that opportunity to scramble. Move over to Miranda Maverick. We just talked about how young Jillian Robinson is. Miranda Maverick's even younger. She's 23. And the first thing when you look at Miranda Maverick uh, is just how physically imposing she is. I mean, this girl is ripped. She's a southpaw, a bit of a Muay Thai specialist, high-volume striker, uses movement very well. She uses her movement to kind of dart in and out of range. And when she gets in there, you know, the pocket, she'll tack with hard combinations. If she wants to keep her distance, one thing she does, she uses, like, sideways karate kick, similar to what Holly Holm uses a lot to kind of keep her space. But if she gets in close, she can land power shots, and she'll look for elbows. And we saw that in her last fight against Luana Jojua. Uh, it was an elbow that cut her and ended the fight. The clinch is also a strength for her simply because she can just out-muscle girls. Uh, she can like lift them off the feet and just push them against the cage and, and land shots and just kind of weigh on them. Good wrestling, good timing on her entries, uh, good top control. She looks to like secure one limb and kind of hold them down, something similar to what... You know, all seems like all the Dagestanian fighters like to do, especially, you know, Habib Nurmagomedov. And I'm not calling her Habib Nurmagomedov, but I'm just kind of using an example. She's She's got a mean streak in her. Like, when she, on top, she's going to unload heavy ground and pound. Good back takes. She's got four submission wins. Uh, the biggest issue with her, though, is she's not like Robertson in, in, the, in the sense where she will secure a position. Like, she'll look for that submission and... And give a position. And also, she's been taken down by weaker wrestlers. So, as far as the prediction goes, this simply comes down to whether Robertson can take Maverick down. I think she can take her down. I don't know if she'll be able to keep her down. I think Maverick will do enough to get on the feet, get back to the feet. And on the feet, she should have a big advantage. I think she, you know, pieces her up a little bit on the feet. I think she's going to get enough time on top where Robinson's on bottom, maybe pulls God or something like that. And, and, Eat some heavy ground and pound. And I think Maverick has that like killer instinct to finish this fight. So I'm going to say Maverick wins. I think it's going to be impressive. I think this might be a little bit of a coming out party for her. I think she gets a second round TKO. I think Robertson is a really appropriate step up in competition for Maverick. But at the same time, Maverick is a very suitable opponent for Robertson. It's not as though the UFC has given up on Robertson and they're just throwing her to the wolves now. Robertson is 6-3 and three in the UFC, and if you look at the people who have beaten her in the UFC, it's 
physically stronger women who have either been able to keep the fight on the feet or have been savvy enough on the ground that they just they didn't have to be afraid of her game. She's a really uh, she's a very savvy grappler, but she's not a a power grappler. If somebody who's a better wrestler and knows what they're doing on the ground goes to the ground with her, in general, they haven't had too much to be afraid of from her. Eventually, there's going to be an opponent that lays Maverick's issues bare. She's really short for a 125er. The the flip side of her being so burly and powerful is that she's one of the shorter 125ers in the division. I mean, she's she's taller than Jessica Andrade, and I think that's about it. And while she throws a lot of volume, she doesn't uh, tend to throw in combination very well. Like, she she just stays really busy, throws a, a lot of single strikes. Robertson is not the person who's going to take advantage of any of that. And I, I'm with you. I think Maverick's going to be able to keep this on the feet if she wants. Or if she decides she wants it on the ground, she'll be able to take it there hard, land in the position she wants, and she'll still have Robertson at a, at a disadvantage. I... I'm going to give Robertson credit and say that she toughs this out, but I think she loses a lopsided decision. And I agree with you. This is a bit of a coming out party for Miranda Maverick, and probably she's going to get fast-tracked to start taking on top 10 fighters in a very shallow flyweight division. Miranda Maverick by decision for me. Next up, it is a welterweight contest as Gabriel Green takes on Philip Rowe. Green, the 27-year-old, is 9-3 and overall, 0-1 in the UFC, having dropped a unanimous decision in his debut at UFC on ESPN 9 last May. He'll be taking on Roe, the 30-year-old, who is returning after a year and a half off, fought most recently in August of 2019, where he knocked out Leon Shabazian on Dana White's Contender Series. Odds right now? Green, the slight favorite, minus 135 or so, where Roe is sitting around plus 115 as the slight underdog. Keith, Dana White Contender Series, I'll I'll definitely throw it to you first. Yeah, so we'll start with Roe. It's been a long time since we've seen him, as you mentioned. Roe is a can crusher. His only good win is Leon Shabazian, who he beat, you know, on the Contender Series um, rest of his the guys got terrible records. Now talk about him from a X and O's. I mean, you got to give him credit because he did get a win on the contender series and got a contract. Um, he's a very long and lengthy fighter. He's got an eighty inch reach advantage. I'm uh, you know, eighty inch reach. He's elusive. He does well to use that length. Like he keeps his opponents at the end of his punches. He throws punches straight down the pipe. Uh, his right hand is. It's like his best punch. He's got some pretty good power in his right hand. When he starts feeling himself and he starts doing well, he'll start to taunt his opponent. He even did it on the contender series. He did like a look away punch towards Shabazian. He does drop his hands, uh, which is an issue. could get him in trouble. He throws hard leg kicks, though I don't think he throws kicks enough. Um, he you know, more favors boxing. Can, uh, can back up a lot. And we even saw that in the Shabazian fight where he'll back up when you pressure him and he'll get tagged from him. I mean, Shabazian hurt him, almost knocked him out in the very beginning of their fight. Uh, the clinch is a safety zone for him. Like he likes being there because he can use his, you know, the strength of his height and his, his, you know, his legs to the midsection. He's not much of a wrestler in the sense of, you know, a takedown artist, 
but he is pretty good at scrambling and winning scrambles where he ends up on top. If he's on top, as we saw in the Shabazian fight, good grind and pound. He is a submission threat. Uh, a guillotine is, is something that he looks for a lot in scrambles. He will even pull guard if he can't get you down, which which I hate, especially because he's not like, I mean, this isn't Gilbert Burns on the ground. Um, he's more similar to what I just said about Jalen Robinson. He'll look for submissions off his back instead of scrambling back to his feet. Uh, Gabe Green is a, is a much different fighter. Uh, he's a very aggressive striker that just uses pressure to break his opponents. I mean, this guy's a tough SOB. <laughs> it's the best <laughs> way I can describe this guy. Uh, you look at his UFC debut against Daniel Rodriguez. He was just walking through hard punches, and Daniel Rodriguez is known for his punching power. And Green was willing to eat the punches to try to land some of his own. And despite getting cracked with big shots, he just kept coming, and he did it for the entire 15 minutes. He fights from both stances. Uh, he does make the mistake of dropping his hands a little bit because he kind of throws from his hips, loop, looping punches. When he's landing, he's usually landing from the pocket area, more the mid-range because he's a little shorter guy. Throws a lot of hard kicks, uh, kicks to the body. He is a submission threat. Yeah, I haven't seen too much of him, but just looking at his record, he's got five submission wins on it, on his record. Cardio is definitely a strength that we saw in his UFC debut. He took that fight on four days' notice and was the one coming on strong after getting tagged by some huge shots from Daniel Rodriguez. Um, I think when I first started to in tape study, I think Green was actually the underdog. I think it actually might have switched now. I, I think he actually might be a slight favorite right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what I originally was going to say, like, oh, hey, I'm going to go with the upset. Roe is more the technically, you know, more technical fighter than Green. However, Green is just a dog, and he's going to turn this into a dog fight. And I don't know if Roe can handle that. I think Roe is going to be forced to be on his bike, and I think he'll finally break. And he's going to back up towards the cage, and Green's going to land some shots. So give me Green. And I actually think he's going to break him and take him out. So give me Green by third round TKO. Man. I thought we were going to have some dissension here. I thought you were going to go with with Roe. On the, these two fighters, there's a good amount of tape on both, but you still almost have to go completely by the eyeball test because of exactly what you said about Roe's record. Uh, you know, coming into the contender series, Shabazian was by far the best fighter he had fought, and I think Green is several notches better than Shabazian. You know, Green is at least probably a UFC level welterweight. I I've seen what makes Rose game work in his regional fights. And I saw obviously what he did on the contender series. The question is just, do I think he'll be able to pull that off on green? And I am worried about it for all the reasons you mentioned. Plus the fact that Roe has been gone for a year and a half. And I just, I don't know what he'll look like uh, coming out the other side of that. Yeah. Green Tough SOB, perfect way to put it. Not only did he do all that in the Rodriguez fight that you named, but that was his first fight at welterweight. He'd been a he had been a lightweight like on the local scene in uh, his fights in Combate and in Bellator. He'd been a lightweight the whole way. He has a lot of submissions on his record. They're mostly submissions from him jumping on guys that he has worn out and beat up. You know, he's not he's not Ryan Hall. He's not sliding for a leg lock in the first 10 seconds of the fight. Uh, 
I could even see him doing that to Roe, just Roe is flagging, Green is not getting tired, he's still marching forward, and he jumps on Roe and, you know, gets a, a rear naked choke or, or something. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to predict that Roe makes it to the final uh, horn. Give me Gabriel Green by decision. Next up on the UFC 258 prelims, we have a quickly thrown together, but nonetheless very interesting featherweight matchup between Ricky Simone and Brian Kelleher. Simone, the 28-year-old who habitually fights at Bantamweight, is 17-3 overall, 5-2 in the UFC, and was in action just three weeks ago, taking on and taking out, debuting Gaetano Perello at UFC on ESPN 20, uh, Chiesa versus Magni. He'll be facing Kelleher. The 34-year-old is 22-11. He is 6-4 in the UFC. He had a very successful 2020 after kind of an up-and-down UFC career. He went 3-1 in uh, 2020. The only loss coming to Cody Stamen and defeated Ode Osborne, Hunter Azure, and Ray Rodriguez, uh, finishing all three of them. Nonetheless, Simone, a comfortable favorite, out there around minus 250, where Kelleher is around plus 210 or plus 215 as the underdog. Keith, first of all, how much do you like this fight, if you like it, and who do you see winning? So I like this fight a lot. Now, you said that this is one of the fights that you know just got added to the card like kind of late, late late edition and you said it was thrown together quickly that's true but we've also had a book three times now they were supposed to fight in september uh at that time something happened with uh ricky simone's camp where it's some covid related he had to be removed then they were supposed to fight in january then it was the opposite team kelleher uh so now third time's chime hopefully we get to see it and i know these guys have been calling for each other a little bickering on social media so this is this is a fun matchup and it's a fun stylistic matchup you know I like Ricky Simone's style. I mean, you, you know the kind of fighter I like. I like Ricky Simone. He's your absolute classic wrestle boxer. He's got some pretty fast hands. I go back to his Ray Borg fight. It's funny because I thought Ray, the Ray Borg fight was probably the fight that he had the most technical skills I've seen displayed, but gets so much hate because Ricky's, uh, Ricky Simone's a very large bantamweight. You know, now he's, this fight is at featherweight, and obviously Ray Borg's a former flyweight that he doesn't get credit for the technical things he was doing. But anyways... He was freezing Ray Borg with his feints, which is always a good sign to see, especially someone who wants to land power shots. Uh, his pocket boxing is solid. He's got fast hands, as, as I already said. He attacks with combinations. He'll target the body. Um, he will make the mistake of like wanting to brawl at times, uh, which isn't good. But as I mentioned in his last fight, he checks leg kicks, and that's what he did in his last fight, which is which is nice to see. He's a great wrestler. He's not a good wrestler. He's a great wrestler. Um and I, he's a great wrestler because he's committed to it. Like, I don't think he has the best entries. I don't think he has the most explosion. He's just, he knows, he's one of these guys, he's improved his striking, but hasn't been a wrestler who just now would fall in love with his striking. His striking complements his wrestling. Wrestling is still the A side of his skill set. Uh, entries are good. Top control is good. What I like about him is not only will he get the takedown, but if you work your way up, he's going to make you pay for it. He's going to he's going to lean on you. He's going to capture a leg. He's going to pin you against the cage. He's going to knee you a little bit. He's very physically strong. He's not a submission threat, but he has he you know, does have some submission. He got a submission in his last fight. Your classic wrestler's choke. You know, you hit an arm triangle. Um, move over to Brian Kelleher. Brian Kelleher. <laughs> 
man, he's such a hard guy to grasp because he's not a great athlete, but he's such an overachiever. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean it as the like the ultimate compliment. He just thrives when he's the underdog. He's the underdog here. He's well-rounded, not great anywhere, but not glaring weakness anywhere. He, st- he switches stances well, uses feints well. He's pretty crafty with his counter-striking. He's got deceiving power, especially when you look at his, like, build. Um, yeah, he's a balding guy, not, like, ripped up. and So you don't think of him as a hard hitter, but he's cracked a lot of guys. He's, I would say, an above-average wrestler. Like, he's not as good a wrestler as Simone is, but he can wrestle. Um, def- but... He also will make you work if you try taking him down, and he defends with a guillotine, and he's caught a lot of guys with that guillotine, in, 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 including his last opponent, uh, Ray Rodriguez. He caught him as soon as Ray Rodriguez got on his hips. As far as prediction go, I think the line's way off. Like I don't think Simone's style, I don't think he should be like a, I think he's almost two-to-one favorite. And that is just because the people constantly count Kelleher out. I think... Keller has the power to give Simone some trouble on the feet. And, of course, he can catch him in that guillotine. That said, I'm still going to go with Simone. I think Simone's going to do Simone things. He's going to push a bunch of takedowns, similar to what Stamen did when, when you know, Stamen opened up a lot with the striking, but he added in takedowns. And when he gets the takedowns, he's going to stay glued to Kelleher, and I think Simone wins a decision. I'm I'm still a believer in Simone. I was shocked when he lost to Uri Faber the way he did. And it was kind of ironic because Simone for the longest time had kind of reminded me of a young Faber at his most raw. You know, just when he always knew, hey, I'm the better athlete. I'm the more well-conditioned guy. I'm the better wrestler, you know, and that'll let me get away with, you know, being a little over-aggressive in, in my striking. That was a bad setback. I don't feel as bad about the Font fight because I think that may just be his ceiling. I think Font's a better fighter, at least at this point in their respective careers. But man, how bad must he want that that Faber fight back? Like, how different would his standing be in the division right now? Uh, I, I feel everything you're putting down. He he still is prone to some lapses in fight IQ, some defensive lapses because he's so aggressive. Kelleher is a guy that is great at taking advantage of that in his opponents. Well, just look at all of his quick guillotines. Pretty much all on guys who were trying to shoot for takedowns on him. I just don't think Ricky Simone is the guy that's going to stumble into that. And if he doesn't, I think his uh, his superior pace and speed and probably more successful wrestling, the ability to put the fight down or up at, at his pleasure is going to win them rounds with the judges. Uh, give me Ricky Simone by decision. And this is going to be my call for fight of the night. Now, this is my call that we'll be saying it deserved a fight of the night. When we're, when we're recapping this thing, no guarantee it's going to win it because I have no idea how, what hat they pull that shit out of, but this is the one that's going to deserve fight of the night. Yeah. Well, we were talking, me and Jay Petri was talking in the chat the other day and it's, it's like, it's weighted on the top. The higher you're up on the list, the more weight you get. It's kind of like, you know, quarterback and MVP, you know, the quarterbacks always get more than a running back and other thing, but sometimes they don't deserve it. It's kind of the same thing. Like you have to, to be down lower in the card, you have to be even more spectacular than if you were higher in the card. Absolutely. Well, at least they don't let the fans pick it anymore. 
They only made that mistake <laughs> once. <laughs> Shout out to GSP getting that extra 50,000 he really, really needed for uh, busting up uh, Josh Koscheck's eye for five rounds. We move on in the UFC 258 prelims with a late edition catchweight matchup between Andre Yule and Chris Gutierrez. The fight takes place at 140 pounds. Yule is a habitual bantamweight. The 33-year-old from Riverside, California, is 17 and 6 overall, 4 and 2 in the UFC. Had a very successful 2020, uh, winning two fights, both by split decision, uh, over Jonathan Martinez back at UFC 247 before COVID, and then after COVID, taking a split decision over Irwin Rivera at UFC Fight Night Covington versus Woodley in September. He'll be taking on Gutierrez, who has bounced back and forth between Bantamweight and Featherweight throughout his career. The 29-year-old from Dallas is 15-4-2 overall, 3-1-1 in the UFC, had a win and a draw in 2020, he defeated Vince Morales at UFC on ESPN 9 back in May, chopping him down with leg kicks in the second round, then had the uh, very rare unanimous draw without a point deduction involved back at UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Shabazian in August, where he drew with Cody Durden after suffering a 10-8 first round and winning the second and third. Gutierrez sitting as a slight favorite here around minus 155, minus 160. Yule is available around plus 135, plus 140 as the underdog. Keith, how do you see this one playing out? Well, I'm glad that this one got added because I really think while this, you know, this matchup isn't a matchup between two of the biggest names in the sport or anything like that, not really, you know, household names. I think this is a fantastic stylistic matchup. I think this is going to be a really good fight. So I'll start with Ewell. Uh, Ewell is a southpaw. When I mean, you see him, he's just a massively long, lengthy guy. He fights at a high pace, high output. He knows how to use his length well, keeps his opponent at bay, following a jab, fast hands, accurate. He's very accurate with it. His left hand is very, very sharp. Um, I love that he he'll like go high with the left hand and then turn around with a like crushing right hook to the body. Uh, he uses step in knees, which is always good for a long, lengthy guy that wants to keep it on the feet. He makes the mistake of backing straight up, which is which is not good, um, especially when you're trying to keep your length. Uh, he also had Aaron Rivera kill him with leg kicks. That was. Uh, the biggest strength in that matchup for River, that's what kept it close. Though I don't think it should have been a split decision. I think you clearly won the fight. Uh, his takedown defense has improved, but it's still, you know, his Achilles heel. Um, that's, you know, an area he's going to have to improve. More to Gutierrez. Gutierrez doesn't have all the tools that Ewell does. But what he's got a few, few tools, but he's very good at those tools. He uses feints very well. He works behind a stinging jab. He just... I love that he just touches a lot, just just touches with a jab, and then when the opening is there, that's when he steps in and loads a good shot. He mixes it up between going to the head to the body, he mixes it up like in his combination, uh, which I always like to see. Leg kicks are his specialty. He loves attack the leg kicks. He stopped Vince Morales in their fight with leg kicks. Uh, he did very well against Cody Durden with the leg kicks. 
Uh, similar to Ewell, his biggest flaw defensively is that he also backs straight up, staying on the center line while he backs up. Take down defense, also like Ewell, is a little bit of, a, of an issue. Um, Cody Durden took him down in the first round, and like that was the end of the round. Like Cody Durden just took his back, and and Gutierrez had no way to get off, you know, get off the bottom. This is a hard matchup to pick. I've been flip flopping greatly. Like I did not decide who I was going to take until right before we went on air. As I said, Ul has more offensive tools. He's the more technical fighter. I think he's actually has the higher ceiling. However, when I think about this matchup and I was watching film, I just can't stop thinking about Gutierrez brutalizing Ul's front leg. I think this is going to be a war. I think Gutierrez is going to have to weather some early shots from Ul. I think he's going to have to weather some big shots from Ul. But if he can, I think the leg kicks are going to do dividends late in the fight. And I'm going to take Gutierrez uh, to win a decision. And this is my fight of the night early on the prelims. This would be my other top candidate for fight of the night for sure. I'm concerned about the leg kicks as well. Yule is inconsistent in checking leg kicks. Maybe he just isn't used to getting a lot thrown his way. I, I don't know what it is, but they're absolutely a weapon for Gutierrez. He has multiple stoppages by leg kicks, and he has other TKO wins where they are really what fueled it. You know, like it ends up being a TKO by punches or or whatever, but what really set it up was him just chopping the other guy's uh, front leg out from under him. I can totally see him doing that uh, to you all. I don't know. Obviously, my your hope would be that Yule is checking them. Yule is countering them with his his nice, like crisp punches. I am leaning towards Yule in this one. I am trusting him to do the smart thing, do the, the right thing. Uh, well, the right thing for himself. I like that you pointed out that his split decision over Erwin Rivera was a pretty straightforward win. But to be fair, I thought his split decision win over Jonathan Martinez, I, I scored that one for Martinez, and I know at, at least a good number sure. of other people did uh just funny thing is neither of them should really have been splitters they were all pretty straightforward fights uh yeah give me yule i'm i'm gonna trust yule to do the right thing do the smart thing and avoid enough damage to his legs to weather out uh, a decision over chris gutierrez in another really fun fight Next up, it is a scrap between two strawweights looking to keep up their momentum as poliana viana meets mallory martin Viana, the 28-year-old Brazilian, is 11-4 overall, 2-3 in the UFC. She is coming into the bout on the strength of a win over Emily Whitmire in August of last year, submitting her by armbar in under two minutes. That snapped a three-fight losing streak that uh, took up most of her 2018 and 2019. She takes on Martin. The 27-year-old American is 7-3 overall, 1-1 one one in the UFC. She joined the UFC out of Invicta Fighting Championships, lost her debut to Verna Janjaroba, then defeated Hannah Cyphers at UFC Fight Night Smith versus Rockich last August. Martin is a slight favorite, available around minus 155. Viana available around plus 135, plus 140 as the underdog. Keith, who do you have? Uh, so <laughs> this is this is not a good fight. Uh, neither, I mean, it'd be competitive, but it's not a good fight in in sense that something we get excited about because neither one of these girls will 
in my opinion, will ever crack the top 10 rankings. Uh, I'll start with Viana. She's a one-dimensional fighter. She's going to want to get the fight to the ground. On the feet, her striking is god-awful. Her throws arm punches, no power, chin high in the air, pulls her head straight back. Uh, she has long legs, so she has decent kicks that you know she can kind of kick you from across the cage. But she throws them naked, leaving her open to hard counter punches. And her long legs are also huge targets for calf and you know uh, thigh kicks. Her wrestling is bad. Uh, she she kind of has to like pull guard to get you down. She is a submission threat off the canvas. I mean, she's a former world champion in BJJ. Uh, and her best bet is to either like get you a know, pull guard and sweep you, or to kind of catch you in a submission like she did uh, against Emily Whitmire. But I feel like she has more of a competition BJJ style than a MMA style. What I mean by that is, like, she'll in past fights she'll like jump down on heel hooks and leg locks, and and like which will leave her open to get punched in the face and elbowed in the face, which uh, is is not smart. She's also been submitted in the UFC, which is really surprising for a girl who's such you know decorated grappler. She was submitted by Veronica Macedo in sixty nine seconds. Um, if she doesn't get a submission, um, she will look for ground and pound. I mean, like some land some elbows and stuff on the floor, but you know, nothing spectacular. Move over to Mallory Martin. She's also not comfortable on the feet. Uh, she seems like she strikes because she knows it's an MMA fight, and like it's almost like a rule that she has to start by striking. She throws one punch at a time. Uh, she was getting pieced up by Hannah Cyphers on the feet. She got floored by Hannah Cyphers. I think she briefly got like flash knocked out by Hannah Cyphers. And when she either when she landed, hit the ground or when Hannah Cyphers followed up with a punch, it kind of woke her back up because she was hurt. She is a brute, though. She's very physically strong. Uh, you see that in the way she wrestles. She constantly looks for better position and she has ferocious grind and pound when she gets it. Like she has a killer instinct. This is a really hard one to pick. I'm not high on either one. But I'm going to do the very same rationale I did last time when I had a Vienna fight when she fought Emily Whitmire, who's you know who's also someone who likes to wrestle, similar to Mallory Martin. Uh, I did, I think I did that with TJ Sanders on his between round radio breakdown. I'll go with the girl with the credentials, just that alone. Like she, if the fight hits that, she's supposed to win on the ground. Will she be smart enough? I don't know. But give me a Vienna to catch a submission in the first round. I I can. I can see where all that's coming from, and I still cannot pick Pollyanna Viana. The I'm not going to make some sweeping pronouncement like these are the two worst strawweights in the division because I'm sure there's somebody out there I'm forgetting. But in in starting to do the research on both of these, just I was reminded how many really really bad looks they've they've had. You know, Mallory Martin beat Hannah Cyphers, but she got thrashed in that first round. I thought it could have been stopped at one point. And that was to Hannah Cyphers. Hannah Cyphers, who by all rights shouldn't have even still been in the UFC. She was on a three-fight losing streak at the time. And not only did Viana lose to Aldrich, or lose to Cyphers, she also lost to, to JJ Aldrich. And in both cases, she couldn't get her grappling game going against them. And Cyphers is pretty strong for how tiny she is, but Aldrich really isn't. I'm 
I know she can do it because she did it to Emily Whitmire and Martin has some of the same traits, but I still don't believe in Viana to get it going against someone who will be so much stronger and more athletic than, than she is in, in Mallory Martin. So it might actually be a, a pretty exciting fight to watch, but not the highest level thing we've ever seen. And give me Mallory Martin to hang on and win a decision just by being on top, not getting submitted and uh, doing some damage. And for whatever time that we have to suffer them on the feet, it's probably close to a wash, but if anyone gets the better of it again, it's probably Martin. So Martin by decision. Up next, we have a welterweight matchup as Bilal Muhammad takes on Diego Lima. Muhammad, the 32 year old, is 17 and three overall, eight and three in the UFC. He is on a three fight win streak, having taken on Curtis Melender, Takashi Sato, and Lyman Good in his last three fights and emerged victorious each time. He faces Lima, the brother of the Bellator welterweight great, is 15 and seven. He is four and five across two separate stints in the UFC. But despite that, he is on a three-fight winning streak of his own, having defeated Chad Laprise, Court McGee, and Luke Jumo in his last three fights. Lima is a substantial underdog, available around plus 280 to plus 285, where Muhammad is around minus 345 as the favorite. Keith, are those odds uh, in keeping with reality? Is there any value here? How does this fight shake out? Yeah, so I guess I'll show my hand right away. No, I actually think the line is about where it should be. I think Bilal Muhammad should be a very, very big favorite. I mean, Bilal Muhammad at this point shouldn't be fighting Diego Lemus. He should be fighting that, you know, your top 15-ish or guys. Uh, Muhammad, he is a little undecided for the weight class. That's the, the area where Diego Lima will have an advantage on him. Diego Lima is a big dude. Like, he looks like he's a light heavyweight. I love Bala Muhammad's fight IQ. You can tell he's a thinker. He comes in with a game plan, and he usually executes it perfectly. He has great movement. He says very composed. Uses feints well. Works behind a jab. He's constantly attacking, you know, high and low, up and down, calf kicks. Uh, he doesn't move his he- head that much, which is which is an issue. Uh, he nearly got knocked out by Lyman Good late in their fight because of it. Uh, but that's really the only glaring hole on the feet. Um, and he's not a one-punch, you know, end-in-fight guy. Like, that's not him. And that kind of goes back to being a little undersized. He's a great wrestler. Like, really good. Like, he's... I don't think he has enough credit for... Like, a lot of people... It's funny, when he came in the UFC, he was known for his striking. <laughs> he's not. He's a wrestler. Um Great timing on on dropping on his opponent's hips. Does very well to kind of get them to overcommit to hit a punch, and then he ducks under, and and uh, just runs right through your hips. And he's got some good back takes, good back control. Moreover, to Lima, as we talked about, he's just a very big guy. Um, he always obviously he gets compared to his brother Douglas, but the comparisons are fair because they fight similar. We actually talked about this off the air. Everything Douglas does, that's very similar to what his brother does. Like they, they like to kick the legs. They work, you know, the long punches. They're, you know, boxers. The only difference is Diego isn't the athlete 
that Douglas is. He doesn't carry nearly he, his hands are nowhere near the same speed. His kicks doesn't have the type torque and whip. Uh, but even like their defense, they both kind of have a high guard. Uh, they're technically sound. I mean, Diego Lima is a technically sound fighter. The other thing that, from an X and O's, I would say it's a little different. Douglas has more more of an output than Diego. Diego likes to fight a little bit slower pace fight, and I think that might be a cardio issue for him. He does have some power though. Like it's one thing about Diego. Like he hits you clean. He'll put you out. Uh, as I talked about, they like to. Douglas is legendary for his calf kick. Diego also likes to kick the calves. Uh, kick, kick, kick the calves. Diego will wrestle a little bit more than Douglas. Douglas would. Douglas is a, kind of a sprawl and ball guy. Where Diego will add in uh, some takedowns himself. It's not really his go-to, but it, it's good something to have in your back pocket. Uh, he'll sneak in a takedown, not really in a you know shoot in on a guy, kind of more of back up against the cage and then kind of just grab, drop down on the hip and kind of pull, you know, just do the old pull your legs out kind of thing. That said, Douglas used to be a god awful wrestler. You go back to the Rory McDonald, the first Rory McDonald fight where Rory McDonald just kept taking him down. Diego, from what I've, yeah, I haven't seen improvement. He's a god awful wrestler. I mean, that's kind of how you beat Diego. You take him down. The other thing about Diego is his chin has been an issue in the past. We haven't seen it recently, but he has been knocked out and rocked in, in several fights. Uh, as I said in the top of breaking out his mat, this is a this is a mismatch. This is this is Bilal Muhammad's fight to miss. I mean to, to lose. Unless Diego catches him with a one punch, I expect Lima just to kind of take uh excuse me, to Muhammad just to take Lima down, kind of rinse and repeat until he can't get up anymore. And Muhammad finally gets the back, sinks in the red, naked choke. So give me Muhammad by second round, red naked choke finish. I'm glad that Diego Lima is on a three-fight win streak in the UFC. Before that win streak, when he lost to Yushin Okami, he was one and five in the UFC. He was right up there with the worst records of any fighter with that many fights in the UFC. It was, you know, on that kind of Elvis Sinisic level of you know, why do they keep bringing this guy back? So I'm glad that he's won three in, in a row. The downside of him winning three in a row is that they almost have to give him someone like Bilal Muhammad. And I'm with you. This is going, this is not going to go well. With all all due respect, the three guys he's beat, Chad LaPreeze, Court McGee, and Lou Jumeau, uh, LaPreeze is already out of the UFC. Court McGee will either be released or retire, and Jumeau is borderline UFC material, and he's jumping from that to a top 15 level fighter in Bilal Muhammad. I'm glad that you mentioned Muhammad's uh, fight IQ, because I think it's the coolest thing. It's very rare to find a fighter who is a reliable action fighter. Like his fights are appointment viewing. You know it's going to be a banger, but is also smart. His fights aren't just exciting because he's a wild brawler who, you know, just goes out face first and, and lives or dies by the sword. So it's a very cool thing about Bilal Muhammad. As you say, that does help make up for some of his physical deficiencies. He's small for the division, and it's not like he makes up for it with off-the-charts, fast-witch athleticism. He's just a smart, you know, smart guy who, who gets by on smarts, conditioning, uh, aggression. I like, I like Muhammad a lot. Lima's weapons and his improvements just don't line up with the way that Bilal Muhammad loses fights. He doesn't lose bad fights. 
you, you look at every one of Muhammad's losses in the UFC, and he lost to Jeff Neal, a much, much like full weight size, lar- full weight class, larger looking guy who is himself a very sharp boxer. And then, you know, got aced by Vicente Luque and lost his UFC debut to Alan Joban, another guy who looked a full weight class bigger and is an underratedly good fighter. I'm I'm certainly not going to go out on a limb and pick something that I've never seen before. And I've never seen Diego Lima beat a top 25 welterweight, let alone a top 15 welterweight. I've never seen Bilal Muhammad lose a bad fight. This would be a bad loss for him. The only question is whether Lima makes it to the final uh, horn. Lima has gotten tougher. I I thought a couple years ago that, that maybe he was a little bit of a wilter when things didn't go his way. I don't feel that way anymore. And while his chin can be cracked, Muhammad tends to take his opponents out by attrition, you know, by, by hitting him in the face 50 times instead of just one nuclear detonation. I can see Lima making it to the final horn, but I'm, I'm going to pick against it. Give me Muhammad by third round TKO. It might turn into a mercy tap sub, but I, th- I think Lima finally just goes down under the onslaught in the third round, probably a TKO on the ground. That brings us to the featured prelim of the evening, at least as currently constituted on this card that has been changing constantly during fight week. It is a middleweight matchup between Rodolfo Vieira and Anthony Hernandez. Vieira, perfect 7-0 as a professional mixed martial artist, a perfect 2-0 since joining the UFC, having choked out Oscar Piajota and Saperbeck Safarov with identical arm triangle chokes. He takes on Hernandez, the 27-year-old Californian who came to the UFC through LFA and Dana White's Contender Series, is 7-2 with one no contest overall. He is 1-2 since joining the UFC. That one no contest, a 40-second knockout of Jordan Wright on the Contender Series, which was overturned due to the devil's weed shortly thereafter. Uh, Vieira... We hear all the time about world-class grapplers, decorated grapplers, champions of this or that transitioning to MMA. And unless you follow grappling, they can all kind of start to run together. You know, this guy's champion of this, this guy's champion of that, this guy has these medals. Uh, Rodolfo Vieira was legitimately one of the five, if not three, best grapplers in the world anywhere within spitting distance of his weight when he transitioned to MMA. He is absolutely the real deal. He's an Abu Dhabi gold medalist. Uh, He's a four-time Mundial's winner. And, I I mean, he's not exactly the same, but in terms of kind of his build and his game, it just reminds me of, like, a lighter-colored Jacare, a burly brute, just a specimen of a man that... Even when you saw him competing, whether gi or no gi, you were like, okay, if this guy crossed over to MMA and he can even take the hint of a punch, he'd probably do all right. The same way you might have looked at Jacare, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. He's that guy. This, <laughs> this fight is a bit of a setup for him. Anthony Hernandez does a lot of things well. He, he's, he's a good fighter. I think he's, I think he's better than his one and two UFC mark. Uh, you know, make him look. 
but we're talking about a, a guy that just blundered into a front headlock from Marcus Perez and uh, got Anaconda choked or Darce choked. I'm trying to picture it. This is this is going to be a complete squash match. Vieira by first round submission, and honestly, Vieira by submission probably in the first three minutes. Uh, Hernandez won't be able to stay away from him. He won't be able to keep him from just throwing him to the ground because Vieira, kind of like Jacare, just through athleticism and brute strength, was pretty good on the wrestling part of it. He has, you know, good actual wrestling entries as well as, uh, you know, all the usual variety of trips and throws. Just expect Vieira to get in on Hernandez's hips, toss him, you know, uh, ass over tea kettle, and probably just get another arm triangle. Just get the, the muscle man submission, and it'll take uh, less time than it took me, me to say all this, which is three minutes and 30 seconds. Keith, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm crazy. Okay, so you're wrong and you're crazy because it might be even less than three minutes and 30 <laughs> seconds. Uh, so I'll start with Vieira. Let's talk about his striking. He's obviously... He's new to MMA. He's very raw. I mean, kind of get the fast track to the UFC. He's raw on the feet. We haven't really seen too much of him on the feet. You know, the last time he really wanted to test himself, he actually got hurt by Saprovec Safaros in, in, you know, the very early of that fight. But as you said, as you said in the introduction, I kind of try to repeat, he's elite of the elite of the elite on on the canvas. Seven-time World Cup champion, five-time World uh, BJJ champion, and Abu Dhabi champion. Um. What I also like to say is he isn't just a BJJ guy. What I mean by that is, as you mentioned, his wrestling is good. He has, you know, there's been BJJ guys who've made themselves wrestlers. Like David Maia is kind of like he's kind of learned his little sides, you know, sweep single. That's not the case with him. He's just good. He's explosive. He has that, you know, super, super strong blast through his opponents you mentioned jacare i think that's a great comparison when i it's funny that you made a comparison to him because i wrote someone down too but i was thinking ricardo arona that's who you know back in the old uh pride days like similar obviously he was an abu dhabi champion um similar with his wrestling entries kind of like a wrestling base to his grappling not not your gracie you know pull guard kind of style uh move hernandez hernandez is just a guy <laughs> he's he's very inconsistent uh, he hits hard. He has some subs, but he isn't a great athlete. Vieira's going to run right through Hernandez. I expect him to want to test it on the feet a little bit. But after two, maybe three minutes, he decides just to take him down. Uh, maybe what he says when the coaches say, okay, now it's time. And then he's going to submit him. This is my lock of the night. And I'm not locking him that he's going to win because that would be kind of corny. That would be kind of cheap. So I'm locking that Vieira is going to win in the first round by submission. So I'm locking all three in. So that's my lock of the night. All right. For style points, what technique did you get it done with? Okay. So you went with head and arm triangle, right? So that would be unfair if I did that. So uh, let's just do like something. I'd do key lock, but like that's that's just like only heavyweights do a key lock. <laughs> uh, how about like uh, – how about an armbar that he sets up from like a crazy scramble? Like he, he like similar to what Matt Hughes did to George St. Pierre, where like he like goes all the way around his body and finishes like an armbar that way. Man, if that one comes true, you <laughs> check in to the recap as as Keith Schillen takes his victory lap around the studio. <laughs> if 
Uh, Hernandez taps out Vieira. Our show will be canceled, and we'll come back a, a month later when you've forgotten all about this. With that, we jump over to the pay-per-view main card of UFC 258, where we start off with a lightweight matchup between two veterans in Jim Miller and Bobby Green. Miller, the 37-year-old New Jersey native, is 32-15-1, or sorry, 32-15 and 15 with one no contest uh, in his lengthy and storied career. He is 21-14 and 14 in the UFC and is one of those fighters, along with Diego Sanchez, Donald Cerrone, who seems to retake one of the UFC's records every time he gets into the cage. The three of those are kind of just juggling the record book amongst themselves until they retire. He'll be taking on Bobby Green. The 34-year-old Californian is 27-11-1 overall, 8-6-1 in the UFC. Green fought most recently on Halloween, losing a competitive unanimous decision to Tiago Moises that snapped a three-fight win streak that opened the year for him. Green, a strong favorite in this one, sitting around minus 260, Miller around plus 220 as the underdog. In the Sherdog staff chat, Keith, I kind of made the joke that this fight was the Mr. Pibb version of Guida versus Michael Johnson on last week's card in that it looks like the knockoff, but it's actually better. It was funny, but is it true? I'm, I'm kind of wondering it's, at this point. It's so funny. I didn't see you put that. And I actually added that in my notes. So I, you know, I don't just do this off the top of my head. I do have notes. And I was going to say something similar on the prediction side about that, that Jim Miller is to me, your know, clay greeter. He's the guy at this point of his career, most of his skills have really diminished, but he still has so many intangibles. And Bobby Green is this, the opposite. He has still has his skills, but the intangibles are not there. Like Jim Miller for his whole career is like an overachiever, and Bobby Green is the underachiever. Bobby Green is the guy who fights down to one, and that's your Michael Johnson. Like that's why I think it is. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's a better matchup than Gleader and like I just like pretty even. Like you could have just changed them. Like you could have swapped it. You could put Miller against Johnson and Green. I mean, we did see Green against Guida recently. Um, I'm assuming you want me to break this fight down. Uh, I mean, God. let me just like throw mine out real quick because I probably don't have as much X's and O's wise as you do. But the the funny thing is, Miller obviously he has uh, a win over Guida fairly recently. You know, like less than two years ago. I don't think that fight plays out the same way if they fight again. Now he beat Guida the only way Jim Miller is going to beat any decent fighter right now. First round submission. That, that's what he's got left in his tank. Whereas Guida, as we saw last week, he's still got a fantastic gas tank, still got a good work rate. And Miller is just, he seems to be fading faster, even though he's a little younger than Guida. Just more fights, you know, like at the UFC level, health issues. The thing about Green to me is, Obviously, you know, he's he's well known among hardcore fans for kind of his like, you know, his his clowning, dancing, you know, you missed me, I'm going to wag my finger at you type thing. But despite that, he doesn't really lose to, to terrible fighters. You know, it, like it was a 
hilarious moment when he clowned around and got knocked out by Dustin Poirier, but he, he was going to lose to Poirier anyway. Poirier is just a better fighter. Uh, and Green is actually looking better and better. He lost to Tiago Moises at the end of last year, but Moises, I think, again, just, just a better fighter and a younger fighter who's a little more on the come up. Before that, he'd beaten Guida, beat Lando Venata, beat Alan Patrick. That's a pretty good win streak for Bobby Green in 2020. Like, Green is fighting as well as he ever has, really, whereas Miller is just hanging on by just by his, his fingernails. I don't know when he's going to retire. Uh, hopefully, it's not going to take him just continuing, or it's not going to take him just getting hurt really badly. I picked him against Vince Pichel just because I didn't trust Vince Pichel, even though he's a fresher fighter, a more skilled fighter at this point in their careers. I'm not going to make that mistake again. Miller has one round at most to get it done against Green. He has four minutes to catch Green and something and take him down and either pound him out or take him down and get a quick rear naked choke or a quick guillotine or a bravo choke or something. Green's not that guy anymore. Give me Green to survive the first round, even if he loses it. Kind of like Pichel lost the first round to Miller just because Miller threw all the offense and the kitchen sink at him. Give me Green to win at least the last two rounds and win a unanimous decision. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with everything you're saying here. To talk about the Vince Pichel, yeah, he won the first round, but his cardio was completely shot, and that's why Vince Pichel came back. Like Jim Miller was still a better fighter, technically, than Vince Pichel at this point of his career, and just the cardio was completely shot. Um, and you talked about taking Bobby Green down. It is it, his only chance of winning. I agree with you, but Bobby Green is not a guy that you can take down. That's like the one thing about his career. He's always been good at scrambling. He's always been good at uh, take that defense. I mean, you, you saw Clay Guida trying to take him down and and really struggled with him. Jim Miller has always been a he's been always been more savvy than te- than than explosive. He's a you know he's your technically sound fighter, but not a great athlete. He was well rounded in his prime. But that's just simply not the case anymore. Yeah, on the feet, he's lost oh, not one step, but two or three steps. He lacks head movement. Uh, he's much slower. He still has a chin, and that's just, you know, I think it's more has to do with just his pure toughness. I think Dan Hooker's the only one who's knocked him out recently. Um, he's a technical wrestler. Like he, he understands the art of wrestling. He understands he knows, probably knows so many moves and and whatever, but he's not explosive to really execute it anymore. He's a slick, slick jiu-jitsu game that's always been the strength of his of his, of his game. He's got 18 submission wins on his career. Guillotine kind of being one of his go-to things. But he, as you mentioned, he's got to end it early because he his just simply doesn't have the cardio to go 15 minutes anymore. He has the cardio to go, five, well, 15 minutes competitively anymore. Like he'll, he's tough enough that he could fight 15 minutes but to be competitive. Now, Bobby Green... Man, Bobby Green is just one of these guys He's always frustrated me. Switches stances, keeps his hands low, throws from his hips, kind of from weird angles. He's got good head movement. He kind of rolls with the punches, doesn't really get hit clean, uh, but does, doesn't understand the mindset. Like He's a guy, if he makes you miss, he's winning. Um, he has a stinging jab. He can strike. Like he's some, he's got some technically sound skills. He can fight behind a jab. He can strike while backing up. Uh, he can throw elbows in close. But he always fights down to his competition. Like he never blows someone out. It's always a close fight. Yeah, even even like like uh, his last fight, Moses. 
uh, Moises, I think he lost that one. A lot of people thought he won, but just, it still came down to him fighting down to his competition. It's like it's it, the Clay Guida wasn't a blowout; it was a close fight. And a lot of that has to do with just his output. He he picked it up recently. He, he's going to throw more, but it's still kind of a low output kind of guy. Can kind of cruise. He's a great defensive wrestler, though. Um, but you never see his offensive wrestling, even though he comes from an NCAA wrestling background. He just wants to strike. As we talked about the whole Johnson Kalita comparison, I am not as confident as you are in Green, simply because it has nothing to do with Jim Miller, it has nothing to do with Bobby Green. I just I can't ever have confidence in picking Bobby Green. It was like what we were saying about Johnson and Kalita last week. I was like, Johnson's a way better technical striker right now, but somehow Johnson will find a way to lose. Somehow he found a way to lose. That could be the case with Bobby Green. I'm not going to take it. I would be a lot more surprised than I was last week. But <laughs> I'm not betting on it. So uh, give me Bobby Green probably by decision. But, again, I'm not betting on it. Next up on the pay-per-view main card of UFC 258, it's a middleweight Smash him up between Maki Patolo and the returning Julian Marquez. Patolo, the 30-year-old Hawaiian, is 13-7 and seven overall, 1-3 and three since joining the UFC off of the third season of Dana White's Contender Series. He fought most recently uh, this past August, twice in fact, losing to Impa Kasanganai at UFC Fight Night Smith versus Rakic and losing to Darren Stewart by first-round guillotine choke submission at UFC Fight Night, Lewis versus Olenek, just three weeks before that. He will welcome back Julian Marquez, the 30-year-old, is 7-2 and two overall. He is 1-1 one and one in the UFC, but has not fought since July of 2018, so over two and a half years at this point. That last fight, a split decision loss to Alessio DiCirico, at the Tough 27 finale. Despite the long layoff, Marquez, a slight favorite, available around minus 165, where Patolo is sitting around plus 145 as the underdog. Seeing as these are two Dana White's Contender Series alums, Keith, tell me all about them. Yeah, so Marquez is huge. He's a huge middleweight. He's even bigger when he misses weight by five pounds, <laughs> as he did in his last fight. Uh, you mentioned him not being around for over two years now. He's not technical. That's not what he is. He's a brawler. He likes to just walk down his opponents and invite them into you know, close quarters to throw bombs. He throws everything hard. He hits hard, throws sharp, tight hooks, loves his overhand right. Hard kicks to the body. Um, obviously, he has a high kick on the contender series of Philip Hawes that went viral. He's very hittable because of his, you know, marching forward style. But if he can't get you in a brawl, he'll want to grab you and kind of get a grimy clinch affair. Like he likes to pull on the back of your head and throw an uppercut, kind of dirty boxing style. He's a weak defensive wrestler, but to his credit, he's got a pretty good scramble game. Like, he can work himself back up. If he's on top of you, vicious ground and pound. He can catch his submission. He submitted Darren Stewart, you know, two fights ago for him. Cardio is an issue, though. Uh, we saw him really slow down against Alessio Secure. Uh, that's a, a, 
to Jericho um, because he throws everything with power. I mean, that's what happens. Mubo to Maki Matolo, he's the opposite in the sense of size. Like, he's a small middleweight. He used to be a welterweight. He's decent everywhere, but not great anywhere. Uh, he's an aggressive pressure striker. He switches stances, fast hands, uh, attacks with combos, got sneaky pop, but n- more c- cumulative power than, like, one punch hit a quitter. Like he's a guy who will, will bust up your face, but just the volume of punches. And that's because he kind of steps in, in on his shots. His his best punch is probably his check left hook, though he does like it overhand right. And he, he throws a lot of uppercuts, uh, which is something I really see fade recently in, in MMA. Not not many people throw the uh, a lot of uppercuts. He's one who does. He attacks the body. Um, when he's in the southpaw stance, he throws a lot of kicks from that position. He's got a very, honestly, similar to what we just talked about, Bobby Green. He likes he rolls with the punches a lot. Um He's he's a builder. He 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 trains with Max Holloway. He fights similar to Max Holloway, not in a technical sense, but I mean that building sense. Like he's a guy that volume increases as the fight goes on. And I, and and sometimes when I say volume increases, it might not be in the sense in the in the in the numbers. It's more in the sense of his opponent is fading and he's not. So that's where the increase is going. Um, checking like this is an issue. Uh, his last fight, I think, was his last fight was an Ipakasagana fight where Kasagana. Probably one from leg damage, kicking the legs out. Chin has been an issue as he's been hurt in the past. Um, inconsistency has been an issue too. Clinch is also an issue because he's undersized, especially against someone like Marquez. Like he, he's going to have to avoid the clinch against Marquez, in my opinion. Uh, but he has a decent wrestle. Like he can get a takedown. He can get some top control, some good ground and pound. And um, ultimately, his cardio is his strength. So this is a fun matchup. Like it's it, while was we talking in the beginning of the broadcast, of, we were saying like we don't think this should be on pay per view from a ranking sense. It's gonna be a fun matchup. This comes down to Potolo's speed versus Marquez's strength. Marquez hasn't fought so long, so it's really hard to trust him. But Potolo is so inconsistent that it's really hard to trust him. But I'm gonna lean towards a more technical fighter um, against my own better judgment. I'm gonna take Potolo. He's he's more elusive. He's got the speed to kind of pick apart Marquez. If he can stay on his bike and just work for, um, you know, work, jab, and move, uh, I think he wins, and that'd be the strategy if I was cornering him. That's what I would have him stick to. So give me Patolo by decision, and this is my upset special. Every time on this card, at least, that I think I'm going to sneak some dissension in, you end up preempting me. I... I feel the same dynamic you do in the first round. I mean, for one thing, they're going to look at least a full weight class apart once they're in the cage together. Once they're fully rehydrated, I think it's going to be ridiculous. Uh, Marquez's aggression. If Patolo's smart, he will just try to, to get in some work and not get finished that first round because uh, Patolo's gas tank has actually been uh, good at 185. Whereas Marquez's has been a problem. He has uh, failed to make weight before. And I think Marquez is going to want to come out and try to make an impression. His fight against Darren Stewart back in 2017, that was the kind of fight that gets a fighter, like a, a mid-card fighter, it gets them a long leash from the UFC. 
because you become one of those guys that's just in like their little secret black book of this is a guy in this weight class that I can plug in and the fight's going to be a banger. His loss to Alessio DiCarico erased all of that because one, he missed weight. UFC, you know, even now in the era of COVID does not have much truck with that. You know, you can you can lose three times in a row and stay in the UFC. You can't miss weight three times in a row and stay. Uh, and the fight was not exciting. It turned into the grind. I think Marquez is going to be motivated to try to come out here and get a quick finish, get a spectacular finish, get a bonus, kind of re-announce his, his presence in the division. And I think that'll work against him. Patolo, despite the Hawaiian pedigree and the hilarious nickname, is not a 2003-style Hawaiian brawler. Uh, he's a good boxer, throws nice combinations. As you pointed out, uh, he's a willing wrestler, and he's a surprisingly successful wrestler considering his size disadvantage in the division. I think Patolo will outsmart, outlast, and in the later rounds, uh, out-hustle and, and outclass Marquez. I could see Patolo getting multiple takedowns later on once Marquez is just sucking wind. But uh, give me uh, Patolo by decision in this one, probably loses the first round and wins the second and third. But it is not my upset special of the night. That's still coming. We stay in the 185-pound division, but scoot quite a ways up the rankings as Kelvin Gastelum attempts to turn things around against the surging Ian Heinish. Gastelum, the former welterweight contender, the former middleweight title challenger, is 29 years old. He is 15 and 6 with one no contest in his mixed martial arts career. He is 10 and 6 with one no contest since joining the UFC as the winner of the Ultimate Fighter season 17. He is currently on a three fight losing streak having lost to Israel Adesanya in April of 2019 for the vacant title or for the interim title in an all-time classic, <clears throat> then having dropped a split decision to Darren Till in November of that year and most recently, last July, he lost to Jack Hermanson via a stunning heel hook submission in under two minutes at UFC Fight Night Figueredo versus Benavidez, too. He takes on Heinish. The 32 year old is 14 and 3 overall. He is 3 and 2 in the UFC since joining through Dana White's contender series and as the departing LFA middleweight champ. He went 1-0 last year, knocking out Gerald Mearshart in just a minute and a half at UFC 250. Despite the opposite direction momentum, Gastelum is a comfortable favorite, sitting at minus 225, where you can get Heinish at plus 185. Keith, who do you like in this one? Um, so this is this is a tough one to call, simply because... I don't really know where Kelvin Gastelum is in this this point. He's been, you know, though he fought for the title and everything, he's been very inconsistent basically through his all his whole UFC run. This is, you know, the worst skit he's been on. Um, motivation has also been very questionable. I know he has that like hashtag quest for gold or mission for gold or whatever he calls it, but. When you see him miss weight and do some very questionable things, it's like, man, how motivated are you? Uh, when I talk about his skill set, his southpaw, he's got great hand speed, hits hard, uh, loves that overhand left. It's a deadly punch. Kind of attacks and bursts. Um, kind of slows down the pace, then attacks, and slows down, then attacks. Uh, 
he can make a mistake by kind of reaching, overthrowing sometimes. Uh, he also was gun shy, surprisingly, in the Darren Till fight. When I rewatched the Darren Till fight, I was surprised at how much he let Darren Till just outwork him. Uh, Till also chewed up his legs. His chin is solid, though. He's been tagged by Adesanya. He's been tagged by Jock Ray. He's been tagged by some heavy hitters in the division. Um, and he's always kind of survived. He's a good wrestler, good grappler. Um, He's not explosive in that, but like you know, he'll sneak in and take down. Like I, I don't think Heinish will have a major wrestling advantage on him. Uh, moving to Heinish, Heinish is not a good athlete. Like when it's funny because like when I looked at him in the contender series, I thought he was a good athlete. And now I've kind of really compl- changed my opinion on him. He's still pretty raw on the feet. Like we saw, you know, that knockout of Jared Marshall, which obviously makes him look a lot better. But I, I didn't see enough where I feel confident that he's a good striker yet. He's um, actually kind of slow on the feet, in my opinion. Though I, he does have some natural power. Uh, he loves his check left hook, overhand right combo. Uh, he likes to throw down in the pocket, which didn't work well for him against Amari Akhmedov and likely won't be a position that will work well with him against Calvin Gaslam. And that's mostly because he leaves his head on the center line. Uh, Heinish has good hard leg kicks, though he doesn't really check leg kicks. He's a good wrestler, but he's not a great wrestler. Like when I watch him, I think he must have been more of a ground wrestler in high school and college. And what I mean by that is, is he's not a guy that really gets good entries on people's hips and drives through. He seems more of like a scrambler or a funk wrestler, or maybe maybe he was a leg rider or something like that. Like that's why I think he was successful in wrestling. Because I I haven't seen these like high high level entries and that's okay like um, I think of, like a guy like Ben Askren we've seen him get takedowns and MMA but when you really go back to like his days as a wrestler he was a f- his nickname is Funky like it was he was a funk wrestler he was like the one of the innovators of funk wrestling like I see Heinis that way and I think a, a perfect example you see that is why he always uses Gramby Gramby's like a sign of mostly funk wrestlers I mean he did it against. Antonio Carlos Jr. He did it against Samariak Madoff. Um, so I get off my rant on wrestling, my wrestling history for a second. I don't know why I went on that rant. Uh, the other thing that worries me about Heinish is he slowed down in that, especially in the uh, Akhmedov fight. Like, uh, it, it, not only did he slow down, but it kind of got ugly. Like, it became like an ugly because they both were tired and, and throwing kind of ugly punches at each other. Prediction this is tough. As I said, um, I'm not that high in Heinish. I feel like. I shouldn't say I'm not high on him, but I feel like this is the the peak of him. Like he's reached his ceiling, and I don't expect him to rise much higher. However, Gaslam could be on this just huge downward spiral. Like this might be the this might be the highest we ever see Gaslam again. Like it just could be continued. Like oh, now he's ranked in the top fifteen. Oh, he lost again. Now he's in top thirty. And like oh, and a year from now, now he's in bare knuckle boxing, and he missed weight in bare knuckle boxing. Like like that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me if that's the like Gaslam route. As I mentioned, Heinrich is probably the better wrestler, but I expect this to be more of a striking battle. Based on the hand speed and um, the probably the still the punching power, I still would favor Gaslin. Heinrich hasn't been uh, you know, knocked out. He he got tagged by Brunson, he got tagged by Akmadoff. Uh I, I should say he has got knocked out in the UFC. I think he was he no, he wasn't knocked out. Um Mm-mm. no, his only okay. other okay, loss okay. was uh yeah. The sub to uh, Marcus Perez. Marcus Perez, yeah. Um, so he has been knocked out, and those two guys both tagged him really good. So I'll say he makes it to all three rounds, but I'm going to take Gaslam and say he wins by decision. 
I, I uh, agree with your entire description of the dynamic and especially of Heinish's advantages and weaknesses. I think I probably overrated him uh, slightly as an athlete based on how he looked in his last few fights in LFA, based on how he looked on the Contender Series. I, I no longer feel that way. I don't think he's a minus athlete per se, like he's, he's a fine athlete for the division. Just he's not, you know, Jacare or Romero, like jump out of the cage type uh, athleticism. One thing he is, is he is crushingly strong. Uh, it, it's something I've, I noticed when he's in the clinch, when he's defending takedowns or going for, for takedowns, he is a strong dude that might stand him in good stead against Gastelum. My, my biggest question mark about Kelvin Gastelum is his, Motivation level, and perhaps, uh, and perhaps his his physical state as well. It's unbelievable that he's still not even thirty years old. It's just a reminder that he was so young. He was, I think, he was twenty one when he went into the the tough house. He was this unheralded kind of you know pudgy Mexican American kid that was just going to get you know flatlined by Uriah Hall, and you know shocked the world and has put together a nice run, but. You mentioned that this might just be the beginning of a spiral for Gasolum, or really on three straight losses, you're you're in the middle of the spiral. But uh, this might be a spiral for him. I agree, and it reminds me of the way I felt about, well, ironically, someone he fought in Chris Weidman, where I spent probably like six Weidman fights expecting this one to be the one where he turned it around, and finally I just realized, no, okay, he is he is shot, like he's physically shot. I'm kind of feeling that way about Gastelum. With my pick here, this is as much a pick of Heinish. Because you know, I think Heinish is a good fighter. I think he's going to spend a little time in the lower reaches of the you know 10 through 15 of the rankings at some point. But it's more of a vote of no confidence in Gastelum. But I'm picking Heinish in this one. Give me Heinish. By decision, I don't think he's finishing Gastelum. When I see some of the people that have not managed to finish Gastelum, like Heinish ain't going to do it unless this spiral is more of a free fall. But for for Gastelum to for to win, I, he would have to, I think he'd have to come out in better condition than he has and fight smarter and more motivated than he has in his last couple fights. And I can't bet on that to happen when everything seems to be trending the other way. His loss to Hermanson was quick. And someone might call it a fluke, I suppose, because, you know, if they fought 10 times, it's only going to play out exactly like that once. But what it really was, was a disturbing lapse in fight IQ and the attention he was paying to the fight. Like he was already back on the feet, getting ready to kickbox again while Hermanson was working on a sub. I don't like that. And... If he makes those kind of mistakes against Heinish, I don't think it's going to cost him a finish, but it'll cost him moments. It'll cost him momentum. It will cost him rounds. Uh, give me Heinish by unanimous decision. And I could even see Heinish winning all three rounds as Gastelum just kind of lays an egg. This is my upset special. Next up is our co-main event, a flyweight attraction with Macy Barber and Alexa Grasso set to square off. Barber, the 22-year-old, is 8-1. and one. She is 3-1 and one since joining the UFC off of Season 2 of Dana White's Contender Series back in 2018. 
She fought most recently just over a year ago, losing her perfect record in a unanimous decision defeat at the hands of Roxanne Modafferi. Grasso, the 27-year-old Mexican, is 12-3 overall. She is 4-3 since joining the UFC uh, as a former Invicta FC contender. She has alternated wins and losses since then. She fought most recently last August, defeating Ji Yan Kim by unanimous decision at UFC Fight Night Smith versus Rockic. Fights, uh, odds in this one, close to a pick'em. Grosso, the very slight favorite, around minus 125, where Barber is available just over even money, around plus 105. Keith, how do you see this one uh, playing out? Uh, so this is this is a tough one. Uh, I don't think it's uh, I don't have a confident pick either way. I don't think it's a, a white Washington or anything. I'll start with Barbara. She's only 22, so she's at the point in her in her life where she can make huge improvements. Um, but she's also returning from a injury, which is concerning. And I can only be, base her on what I see, judge her on what I've seen. Uh, She's one of the girls who can fight for both stances. She's very aggressive. Uh, she likes being being the one to pressure. She doesn't really like being pressured. Uh, when we've seen her be pressured in the past, she's kind of struggled. Perfect example is J.J. Aldridge. J.J. Aldridge had some success early by fostering her back foot. Uh, she does use feints well. She throws a lot of kicks. She's got some good dexterity where she can kind of sneak a high kick in there. She's got good power. I'll give her that. Um, if she hurts her opponent, she's got a killer instinct. Like she will swarm you with shots. Uh, she's been hurt though. JJ Aldris dropped her. Roxanne Modafari dropped her. Um, and I think this is because she drops her hands. She's still got some technical flaws. She keeps her chin high. She pulls her head straight back. Uh, she's good in close quarters though, um, and that's because she's she's a brute. Like she can outmuscle you. She's very strong. She can pin you against the fence, unload some dirty boxing. She's not a wrestler, but if she ends up on top, she's got great ground pound. We saw that in the contender series. Um, she struggled to get Roxanne Montefiore off her when she was on top. Uh, give her a bit of a pass because she blew out her, I think it was her knee she blew out. Mm -hmm. But she did have some moments. Like She did reverse her at one point. She swept her at one point. And I'll give her a lot of credit for showing like, extreme toughness to fight through the whole, you know, I think it was pretty much the whole second and third period with one leg. Movo to Grasso. Grasso is very different than uh, Barbara in her style. She's a very technically sound striker. She's also very young herself. Good footwork. She's light on her feet. Good movement. Fast hands. Uh, just very sharp striking. Defensively, she keeps her hands glued to the side of her face with you know, a high guard. Uh, she has a high output. She loves her kicks. I love when she doubles upper kicks. Like there was, uh, I think it was her last fight against Kim. She was throwing like a low kick followed right by a high kick or a low kick right to a body kick. Like just kind of pop, pop. Like like you see a lot of fighters like kicking the bag. She was doing that on her opponent. Uh, she's been taken down a lot. That's obviously an issue. But she's also faced two of the best wrestlers in the division in uh, Tatiana Suarez and Carlos Spazer. And to her credit, she was pretty consistent in the Esparza fight of getting back up to her feet. And she had some sub attacks. She almost submitted Carlos to sponsor. Um, and the other thing that I really liked about her is her, her cardio. She showed some great output in her fight against Carolina Kovacavich. This is a tough one. 
uh, Grosso is going to want to keep the distance, kind of move. Uh, Barber's going to want to get in the phone booth and, or closer and, and battle there. I'm going to go with the more technically sound fighter. I think Grosso is going to outwork Barber. And until until I've seen Barber fix some of her technical flaws, especially on her feet, uh, I'm going to take a more technical striker. So give me Grosso to use movement to kind of beat her to the punch and, and win most of the exchanges. So give me Grosso by decision. I there's every possibility that I'm gonna look silly as Grosso pieces up Barber from from distance and just you know keeps her on the end of her uh, jab and kicks for for 15 minutes, but uh, last fight was Grosso's first fight at flyweight, her first fight you know where she was like I'm I'm moving up I can't do this anymore. She looked fine. She was you know at no shortage of of power. And her, you know, her cardio was better. She seemed very comfortable. But that was against someone in Ji Yun Kim that is not a burly bruiser of a flyweight herself. Whereas Barber, that is the one thing that you can absolutely say that she is. So I, for me, this will be the first real test of Grasso at flyweight. Obviously, it's going to be a huge test for Barber as well. She had her first loss. She had her first uh injury like big enough to be worth you know worth notice in a fight and it's been a year and as you say she's one of the youngest fighters in the ufc fighters can improve or stagnate enormously when they're that young and and have been off this long i i look back at the mata ferry fight for barber and there are some encouraging things and some not encouraging things the encouraging thing as you mentioned that i mean she gutted it out through there and when you have a young fighter who's undefeated and has never even really taken that much adversity in their fights, you always wonder how they're going to react the first time somebody gives them a bloody nose or the first time, you know, even more so they tear an ACL in the middle of a fight. And she absolutely gutted it out. I have no questions about that regarding Macy Barber anymore. My concern is that that happened in the second round and she lost the first round as well. When Roxanne Modafferi is hitting a clean takedown on you, that. That is that is a bad warning sign. Ferry can get takedowns. She has the Damian Maya thing where she has overcome her lack of athleticism with, you know, little dipsy doodle trips and stuff. But she flat out shot a takedown and shot through Barbara's hips and took her down cleanly. That's not a good look. Uh, luckily, Grasso's not going to try that. Grasso, as you said, is going to, to try to fight an outfight against her, not get into uh, phone booth range because Grasso is good in phone booth range. Barbara is brutal in phone booth phone booth range. So if Grasso knows what's good for her, she's going to try to stay on her bike, use her footwork, use her length. I'm just picking Barber to maybe have to walk through some punches and some kicks, but be able to just collapse that pocket, get her hands on her. You pointed out that she's not a classic wrestler, uh, but manages to get the fight on the ground anyway. It reminds me of somebody I saw this past weekend and was reminded of, Paige Van Zant, where she did a lot of her best work just as a wrestler who got people down by just kind of picking them up and bodying them. It wasn't, you know, a classic single leg or double leg. It was just, I'm going to pick you up and throw you down. I'm sure some of them have names. And as a former wrestler, I should know them, but I only ever took people down with like the headlock throw. So I wouldn't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, give me Barber by decision in a surprisingly fun fight. That brings us to the main event of UFC 258 as Kamaru Usman defends his 
welterweight title against Gilbert Burns. Usman, the 33-year-old Nigerian-American, is 17-1 overall. He is 12-0 since joining the UFC off of The Ultimate Fighter, ATT versus Black Zillions. He'll be taking on former teammate Gilbert Burns. Durinho, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 19-3 overall, 12-3 in the UFC. Burns is on a six-fight win streak including the last four straight since moving up to welterweight for good. Despite all the momentum that Burns has, Usman is a comfortable favorite, currently sitting around minus 275, where Burns is available around plus 230. I, and we talked a little bit about this uh, off air before we started, where, where you mentioned that, you know, looking into the, the fight, you were almost looking for ways that it might turn out one particular way. I'll say this, Burns is, uh, he's certainly the biggest threat to Usman of anybody that's challenged him for the title, including uh, Woodley when when he won the title. I would say he's probably the most dangerous style matchup for Usman since he's been in the UFC, period. Uh, Burns is one of my favorite animals to spot in the wild, and that is a case of a fighter who is absolutely 10 times better since moving up to a weight class that he finds more physically comfortable. And I have no idea why he even, why he even tried to make lightweight for most of the first two thirds of his career, because going all the way back to when he was a grappler and here, he's another guy that, you know, uh, Mundial's gold medalist, a bronze medalist at Abu Dhabi, like not just your average, average black belt, but one of the best grapplers in the world. But even back then, in grappling, he was closer to 170 than 155. So I don't know why he decided he needed to be a lightweight to do well in MMA. But it wasn't necessary. He did well, but he also had a couple of a couple of bad losses at lightweight. A couple of losses that made me say, okay, this guy will probably never be a title contender. Moving to 170 was like flipping a switch. He's been, like, every part of his game seemingly has been better. His chin is better. His gas tank is better. He he was an improving striker anyway, but his striking went from good to like borderline elite uh, in kind of this last run since he's moved up to to welterweight. There there are ways that he can he can beat Usman here. He he's he's not a weakling at 170. That's the other thing about him is he's a big dude. Like not just tall but he's got muscle on his frame his upper body i mean he's he's a strong welterweight he is one of those uh brazilian jiu-jitsu guys who is a good wrestler both offensively and defensively heck look at what he did to tyron woodley i i believe he scored more takedowns on woodley than everyone else in his career put together he has more uh more pure power as a striker more actual like knockout power than Usman does. Like, I'm sure Usman benches more. And I don't know who would, like, get the higher number if they punched, like, you know, the the PSI bag at the Performance Institute. But in terms of power that actually puts an opponent's head on the swivel, changes the, uh, changes the momentum of a fight, finishes a fight, Burns has more of it than Usman does. Just, like, he has all the weapons that he could... Like, he could threaten Usman. I I just can't picture how how he does it. 
uh, Kamaru Usman is, uh, despite the fact that he's like just Titanic and built like a comic book character and comes from a wrestling background, one of the more well-rounded fighters in one of the most well-rounded divisions in the sport. He's a very good striker, good uh, uh, offensively and defensively. He he, he takes a, a few shots, but he's very defensively uh, sound, has good power. He has pop on his strikes. He just doesn't have, you know, the Jake Ellenberger, Matt Brown, like, I kill you with a strike that doesn't even look that hard. He, he doesn't have that, but he has plenty of power. He's not at a deficit. Obviously, fantastic wrestler and just absolute brute in the clinch. You know, one of the reasons that his detractors accuse him of being boring is that nobody can stop what he wants to do. He He's happy to take you down. He spent a lot of time on top of Tyron Woodley, just mauling him. Spent a good amount of time on top of Rafael Dos Anjos mauling him. But I, I swear what he really wants to do is just get you against the cage and mash you there so hard that he wants to see if he can like strain you through it like a colander, like full of pasta. Uh, and I think once he gets Burns there, uh, that's like that's that's where most of this fight is going to take place. It won't be a delight to watch. He could take Burns down, but flat on the ground, Burns is more dangerous to Usman than he is when they're standing in the clinch. Uh, certainly striking at range, Burns is more dangerous to him. So give me Usman by a clinch heavy, probably foot stomp heavy, uh, house full of, uh, you know, not house of blues, but house of booze, uh, you know, people booing from their couches all over the country as Usman wins this thing, eh, you know, 49, 46. Yeah, no, I, I understand your breakdown. I'm going to, I see a lot of similar things that you're seeing in these fighters. Uh, I'll start with. I'll do the opposite of you did. You started with Burns. I'll start with Usman then. Um, Usman, uh, it's his pressure. That's the thing. He's a pressure guy. And what I, I don't mean a pressure as in like the Max Holloway crazy output, though Usman has a very good output. It means he just pressure that he's going to make you work every second of the fight. Uh, he's just going to overwhelm you with this. Uh, he's a long and rangy guy. He can, as you say, he's really grown as a striker in the last couple of years he can work behind a good jab uh he uses a lot of teep kicks to keep his range but he also uses that um that range he uses the long straights to he follows the long straights into his mid pocket range that he really likes uh calf kicks are an issue that, that we show a little bit of weakness jorge Moswell did not have a lot of success but the success he did it was early and a lot of it was the calf kicks which I feel like I should just insert on every fighter now that calf kicks is a weakness on because everybody it seems like <laughs> can't stop calf kicks. Um, he he wings a lot of punches. He still needs to shore that up a little bit. He kind of like can get a little sloppy with that. They kind of um, telegraph a little bit. He also can overthrow punches at a time, um, leaving him in bad position to be countered. That was kind of what we were talking about when we were breaking down the Hardy Masvidal fight was that that was like the one era where Masvidal can make you pay if you, if you give an opening. Well, I love that he attacks the body. He attacks the body and everybody did it on, you know, even the striking exchanges with Colby Company attacking body. Um, we talked about the way he uses pressure, and there's not a lot of weaknesses on Usman, but when I have found some, it is when he is being pressured. Kobe Covington probably had the most success in recent memory against Kamaru Usman than anybody has. And it was when he was forcing 
Usman to fight off his back foot when he had to be reactive. Uh, you said he's defensively sound. I kind of disagree a little bit there. That's probably where I still think Usman's pretty hittable. And I think that's because, in my opinion, he squares up a little too much. Um, and it goes back to, like, looping punches, uh, overthrowing the punches. But to his credit, he's got a granite chin. He's been, like, Kobe Covington hit him with everything. Uh, it, listen, say what you want about Kobe Covington. It was a fantastic fight. And Kobe Covington hit him with everything but the kitchen sim. And Usman didn't even react. Like, Usman just ate everything, um, which is crazy. Like, this guy's going to put pressure on you, and you can't even hurt him. Um, that's scary. Uh, obviously, he's got that high volume. Um, he's a builder, similar to what we were talking about, Patolo. Like, his volume is going to rise. Like, he's not going to get tired. He's His style is going to make you tired. And then he's going to – not only is going to have a little bit of gap on you, but when you tire, he's he's making that gap even bigger. And, uh, and that – and the best way he makes you tired is just his this gifts that he's been born with just being a huge welterweight. He's big. He's fit. He's got muscle on muscle. He uses his size so well in the wrestling and grappling. He's so extremely strong. Uh, a perfect example of that is when he went against RDA. Uh, Brazilian just did back well, and RDA had a, went for Kamara and had, like, his whole body on Kamara, and Usman just, like, pulled his arm out. <laughs> like... Like, I know you have like the perfect technique right now, but I'm so strong I'm just gonna pull my arm out. Uh, obviously he's a good wrestler. You, you know this is a, a guy that was wrestled in college. He can shoot on your hips and just drive right through. But what he likes even more is his snatch single because he has those long arms. He just like snatches. Like, if, you, if people know snatch single, snatch single is actually what you see a lot of like heavier weight classes, like wrestle uh, heavyweights are like kind of like, uh, you know you know, snap his head to the side and then you you step away and you snatch single and you kind of pull the leg out so fast you kind of make it fall down. That's what Usman likes to do a lot. Um, he'll also catch a kick like he was catching Masvidal's kicks to take him down. But if he doesn't get you down, he's okay with it because he'll just push you against, like he just needs to close the distance because he'll just push you against the cage, he'll smother you there as you were talking about, like that's the area you see him beating um, Burns. And I agree, I think that's his best position of everything he does, I said that last time we were breaking down the Masvidal fight. Uh, his chest to chest, he can get you chest to chest, and he can lean on you. He's he kind of always the big guy, and I think he's the best at that position in all of MMA, and that includes Habib. I think I described in the last breakdown that being chest to chest with Usman on you must be the, what hell feels like. It's just hell is Usman. <laughs> Pushing you against the cage, chest to chest, where you can't get off the cage. You're stuck between Usman and the cage, and he punches you in the ribs 20 to 30 times straight because that's what he did to Tyron Woodley. That's what he did to RDA, and they had neither guy, two highly decorated you know, former champions, had no answer for it. Um, the other thing why Usman is so good with his grappling is his mindset in his grappling. He doesn't necessarily need to get you down. He just needs to get you in a position where he has an advantage. And he doesn't get frustrated when he misses a takedown because he understands that. Like, it's not necessarily like, I don't have to hit every takedown. I just have to hit a couple of them. I can get one or two of them, and I'm probably going to win. If he takes you down, he's going to smother you with top control. But what I love is if you start working to your feet, He's going to stay on you and make you work every inch on your way up. He's going to knee you. He's going to elbow you. He's going to sh- hit you with the shoulder. As you mentioned, he's going to stomp your feet. He's he's always hitting you in every position 
regardless of what position they go back to what he is, he's going to make you work for every second. Now, let's move over to Burns. Uh, I, I loved your breakdown of Burns, especially like talking about all the improvements he's made going up to 170. Uh, one thing I, I don't think you mentioned is he's also faster. Like He's got a speed advantage now at 170. Um, he's got tight boxing. He throws tight combinations. The reason why he was winning exchange, like why he hurt, uh, I'll start with Tyron Woodley. He hurt with Tyron Woodley because his punches was on the inside. He, he was he was winning the inside strikes while Woodley was on the outside. So he was beating him to the punch, similar to you know the fam- one of the famous punches that Jose Aldo Conor They both threw a punch, but he was on the inside. Think about um, was it Rocky three with a. Uh, the, the poster of Rocky and Apollo punching him. Yeah. Like, who's in the inside is going to win that. The inside punch is going to land uh, better. And that's what what Burns does so good is he stays tight. Um, he knocked out – he has punching power, though, too. Like, I don't want to take it away. Like, he hits hard. Um, he knocked out Damon Meyer recently with a left hook. It was a beautiful left hit. Uh, he's got thudding – like kicks. And I think that has to do with what you're talking about being like a thick guy. He's got thick legs. He just like they're thudding. They run like like Antonio Silva style leg kicks. It's hard to really find any weakness in in Gilbert Burns' game, but and it's gonna sound very similar to what I just said about Kamar Usman. He didn't like the pressure late that Alexi and I'm going back a while that Alexi Kuchenko pushed on him. He won that fight. He was winning. But in the third round, Alexei Kachenko started to have sex, especially, especially late. And that's when he was forced and burned. They kind of have to backpedal. And I also don't like that when he was going against Damayo, as he does to every opponent, for, found a way to trick him, to force him to go back to the cage. Now, those are two things that, that Usman's going to want to do. Usman's going to want him to push him back. He's going to want to pressure him. Um, and that's that's not a good sign if you're betting on Burns. As far as going on the ground, you already talked about this guy's elite of the elite. He's a three-time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion. He's got good entries. He's got quick level changes. Um, he picked, he got in on a more decorated wrestler in Tyron Woodley, got in on his head, picked him up, power doubled him. He also has body lock takedowns. He can get in the body lock. He stays cl- he stays pressed on you inside trip. He's got good hip control. I'll go back to the Gunnar Nelson fight. He, he judo threw Gunnar Nelson. Uh, to Gunnar's credit, though, Gunnar did take good Burned down, so Gilbert can be taken down. Uh, he, if you're in close, he's got solid, dirty boxing because he's, and that a lot of that happens to with he can open up his hands because he's not worried about getting taken down because of how slick he is. He's got some of the slickest back takes you'll ever see. If he's on top, he's got incredible top control, um, and he'll also pull guard. Like that's a possibility. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if Kamaru Usman, as you were talking about, tries pushing against the cage, and Burns jumps guard. Because he's better off being on the ground in a close quarters position than getting pressed against the cage. So here's my prediction. So you were talking about, you know, looking at tape study and trying to find things. And I was trying to find ways to convince me Burns going to win. And he could could burn sub Kamara Usman. Absolutely. This is a, like we said, he's a three-time world champion uh, he outgrappled Gunnar Nelson. <laughs> I mean, yes, he could catch Kamara Usman in a submission. Though I don't remember ever seeing Kamara Usman in trouble. Could he knock out Kamara Usman? Yeah, I actually think he has a better chance maybe knocking out Kamara Usman because of how hittable it is, because Usman squares up, because Usman tries landing the bigger shot. His, he has those looping punches while Burns is the inside punches we're talking. Uh, yeah, but 
my breakdown is going to be just like yours. The position I see Usman win in is I see Usman just out muscling Burns. I I want to be different. I was like breaking that you were <laughs> breaking it down exactly the way I was. I just think he's going to be chest to chest, stuck against the cage. Usman punch him in the ribs. Usman wearing him down. And um, it's 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 a bad thing. I think it's going to look a lot like the Masvidal fight, which was boring. I think a 50-44. Like, I could see a 10-8 round. I could, I could see, you know, Burns win one. But here's the other thing that stood out to me. When I was breaking down the recent fights of Burns, I said, like, what, what has been a good win? Like, yeah, I, I took like, his last four fights. He beat Alexei Konchenko, who's no longer, I believe, no longer in the UFC. Was never, you know, top chair UFC welterweight. Then I believe it was, it was a, it was a, it was Gunnar Nelson. It was Gunnar. He beat, yeah, he beat Gunnar Nelson, who is a good quality win, mm-hmm. but still like second or third tier welterweight. Yeah. Then he knocked out like 107 year old Damian Maya, who obviously Damian Maya is a legend, and and in his prime that would have been an extremely good win. But at this point of career, is not that good of a win. And then he beat Tyron Woodley, which again, in his prime, would look really good. But it seems like everyone's not only is Tyron Woodley has lost his last 15 rounds in a row, like dominantly. So when you really break it down, I'm like, like, does he even deserve a title shot? Like, does, does Gilbert Burns deserve a title shot more than Leon Edwards does? Well, like, no. I don't know. I don't know if he does. Like, and, and, and I'm not trying to take a shot at him. It's just one of those ones. Like, and then when I rewatched it, like he's had great moments, especially in the Tyron Willie fight, but nothing like jumped off the page. Like, I actually, during film study, I actually lowered my thinking of Gilbert Burns when I was trying to do the opposite. I was trying to build him up. So uh, I did this big, long winning thing to say, I'm with you. I like Kamara Usman in a just grueling Kamara Usman style fight. And he's still the champion at the end of the night. All right. I'm going to give you a quick bonus kind of 4D uh, chess question. Obviously, these guys were, you know, longtime teammates at, you know, Black Zillions slash uh, Sanford MMA. Uh, For one thing, when you have two fighters like that and they're finally going to fight for a title, it's not usually the champ who leaves and goes and trains somewhere else. I'm not even going to ask what that means because that gets into backroom like weird shit that I honestly don't have any idea about and don't care about. You know, it's just kind of surprising that Usman is the one that went to train with Trevor Whitman for this. But when you have two guys like that that have spent like lots of rounds together, and they're not the only guys in that weight class. I mean, Sanford all that time has had, you know, like Robbie Lawler and Logan Storley and Michael Johnson around, but they've clearly spent a lot of rounds together. Usually, both of those guys know what it's going to look like. Like Chuck and Tito both knew who was going to win when they fought. Uh, Rashad and John Jones, clearly like the the dynamic was known to them, even if like people didn't like whisper outside the gym. Do you think both of these guys like have a, have a a handle on who's got the advantage? Yeah, absolutely. uh, What I can think of. So I actually wanted to go into that. Like, because I've heard I've heard other people saying similar things about, well, Usman left and and when you know Evans and John Jones fought, well, John Jones stick around and Evans left and that that's two different gyms. Who knows? It could be a family thing. It could be as, as simple as oh my my wife was 
traveling anyway. It's easier for me to leave. It could have been simply maybe Gilbert Burns was at the gym first. Whatever. You know, like, let's yeah. not dig. Well, it was, I know you weren't trying to dig in. I was, I was more talking right. about the people who, because mm-hmm. I see people on Twitter saying this. Like, maybe that means that they have more confidence in Burns and uh, whatever. Maybe he just wants to change of scenery and kind of learn something else or see the way well maybe he just hit it off with trevor whitman one day at a, at a show who knows i mean he he trevor whitman does the uh the ufc the coach the, the ufc yeah. coaching booth thing and usman's kind of done the desk you know maybe the simply their paths just crossed and they really hit it off who knows so i don't think too much about that now as this is what i think you can simulate a fight in the gym as much as possible, but it's not 100% accurate. Obviously, you know, things change one punch lands. But I, what I expect is that they know, I don't expect to be like, Usman be like, yeah, I win no matter what, and, or, or vice versa. I think they know, like, if this is the position, I'm in trouble. If this is the position, I, like, if, we get, if we're boxing here, like, I can do very well, but I better watch out for this because this is what he, he catches on me. And, oh, I know if I can get this position in the grappling, I'm going to win. But if he gets this position, I'm in trouble. Like, I think that's what it's more like. Not necessarily this is a straight whitewash and one guy is going to destroy the other. Right. But, you know, like Burns might have in the back of his mind, okay, yeah, I've spent at this point like 34 minutes of my life mashed against the cage with Usman, you know, pressing me into it. I know how this ends if we go there. Whereas Usman might be, hey, you know, he, he's dropped me with that left hook a couple times. You know, I need to watch out for that. I'm interested yeah, exactly. to see how that plays out because, yeah, we're going to have to look to like the small nuances and subtle things here. I think to to really have much to take away from this if it plays out like we think. What I would say is this, and now obviously we're getting into the psychological part and all that. I would say that Burns does have that advantage that the coaches that are coaching Burns should have a like, firm grasp on Usman. Mm-hmm. That you know, Trevor Whitman doesn't have as much. You know, obviously he's a fantastic coach and he can break down film and that, but not to the same increases that at least they you think they would have on Usman. Yeah, I I agree. All right, unless you've got anything else, uh, I'm just going to give everybody a quick rundown of the picks. That is right. it for uh, the predictions for UFC 258, uh, Usman versus Burns. For our picks, good bit of dissension tonight. People stepping out on limbs. In the opener, flyweights, Jillian Robertson versus Miranda Maverick. Uh, Keith has Maverick by second-round TKO. Ben has Maverick by decision. Welterweights, Gabriel Green versus Philip Rowe. Keith has Green by round three TKO. Ben has Green by decision. Ben apparently wants it to be a really long night. Uh, Featherweight, Ricky Simone versus Brian Kelleher. We both have uh, Simone by decision. This is Ben's call for fight of the night. The 140-pound catchweight between Andre Ewell and Chris Gutierrez. Keith has Gutierrez by decision. This is his fight of the night pick. Ben has Ewell by decision. Strawweights, Pauliana Viana versus Mallory Martin. Keith has Viana by round one sub. Ben has Martin by decision. Welterweights, Bilal Muhammad versus Diego Lima. Keith has Muhammad by round two submission. Ben has Muhammad by round three TKO. Middleweights. Rodolfo Vieira versus Anthony Hernandez. Both of us have Vieira by round one submission with extreme confidence. 
155, Jim Miller and Bobby Green. Both of us have Green by decision. Middleweights, Maki Patolo versus Julian Marquez. Both of us have Patolo by decision. This is Keith's upset special. 185ers, Kelvin Gastelum versus Ian Heinish. Keith has Gastelum by decision. Ben has Heinish by decision, and this is Ben's upset special. The co-main event, Flyweights, Macy Barber versus Alexa Grasso. Keith has Grasso by decision. Ben has Barber by decision. And in the headline fight, Kamaru Usman defending his welterweight title against Gilbert Burns. Both of us have Usman by decision. That is it for the picks. Make sure to stick around or drop by the SureDog YouTube page after the event where we will be doing a live recap. We will take your questions. We will address your comments. We will laugh at your jokes. We will ignore your insults unless they're really funny. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the fights, and we'll catch you on the other side.